As Napoleon Bonaparte famously said, the winners write the history books. In season one of Rain on Me, we will delve into the Imperial Bees and examine the families of the Bernays, the Bonapartes, and the Bernadottes, and how they intertwined to change monarchies around the world forever. How did a French soldier and a merchant's daughter become the king and queen of Sweden, whose house reigns to this very day? What does the Queen of Holland's notoriously messy life have to do with the Second Empire of France? How did monarchies around the world come to have Creole roots? These questions and other intrigues will be answered as we look at these families and their strategies, drama, and follies, and how they not only changed monarchy, but politics around the world forever. Join me, your host, Jennifer Goldbranson, for season one of Rain on Me, Imperial Bees. Episode eight, Croning an Emperor. Hello and welcome to Rain on Me, a podcast about European royals. We are in season one, the Imperial Bees, where we take a look at the houses of Bjorne, Bernadotte, and Bonaparte. This is episode eight, where we are going to talk about crowning an emperor and the coronation of both Napoleon and Josephine. Today, we are going to talk about the coronation of Napoleon and Josephine and how it is the scene that sets the stage for the remainder of both their lives. When we left the last episode, Josephine is still unable to produce an heir for Napoleon's now hereditary office of first consul. And to secure her place as France's first lady, she marries off her only daughter, Hortense, to Napoleon's younger brother, Louis, and their first two sons are named Napoleon's heirs. So we set the stage around 1801. There was a brief peace with England that put a stop to the Revolutionary Wars. Though it remains a tenuous and controversial truce, there's great goodwill for it, especially in France. Now, remember, France has been at war now for a decade, so they're, lo- they're very happy to see peace. Since he's not fighting wars for a minute, Napoleon focuses on France's colonies, who have overstepped their independence while the continent was busy fighting each other. Slavery was abolished in the French colonies in 1794 by the revolutionary governments. War is expensive. Let's not forget that the revolution essentially happened because the treasury was emptied helping America win their revolution. And America never paid France back. So Napoleon has been rebuilding the treasury through war over the last five years. But France has still been at war for a decade. So when... There is peace. People are rejoicing because they have lost a lot of their men to the war. The Egyptian campaign only came back with half of the soldiers they left with. So France really loves this truce with England, even though it's kind of farcical. All righty. So Napoleon, let's be very clear. Josephine grew up in the colonies. She grew up in Martinique, and she is very much against slavery. She is 
an abolitionist at heart, and she championed the 1794 decree against it. Napoleon, however, is looking at the books and is like, we are losing a huge amount of money from the colonies every year without the slave trade. And Napoleon reinstates it in 1802, and the slave trade would continue in France's colonies over the next 20 years. Nobody on mainland France really cares about that, but it causes unrest in the colonies, and it also makes Josephine incredibly angry. Now, don't forget that Mimi, who is Josephine's right-hand lady, was a slave on her father's plantation and is said to be Josephine's half-sister. And Mimi has been living a good life in France and has family back in Martinique that was free. Now, Martinique is a non-issue because the English now control Martinique, but Josephine is incredibly angry with her husband for reversing this decision just to make money. Uh, And it goes on for the next 20 years until it is outlawed again. This leads to the Haitian Revolution. The Haitian Revolution was a big deal. They sent everyone and their brother to Haiti to which was Saint-Domingue at the time, sent everyone to Haiti to stop this revolution, but they lose, and the Haitians win. And nobody really expected the Haitians to win, but again, it was a warfare of the continent versus the colonies, and the the people of the colonies knew their land. It was a very um, Vietnam-adjacent situation where they didn't know the the terrain, they didn't know the warfare, etc. So now even more strapped for cash after spending a ton on this Haitian revolution, Napoleon has to sell the territory of Louisiana to Thomas Jefferson for 15 million, which is less than three cents an acre. Now here is where Jefferson and Napoleon kind of butt heads. Jefferson doesn't want Napoleon to conquer North America. He has a very real fear of Napoleon, especially after the Haitian Revolution, coming through the St. Lawrence, through Quebec, and then up the Mississippi through Louisiana. Jefferson has a real fear of Napoleon overtaking North America. And I kind of wish Napoleon would have set his sights there rather than the rest of Europe. But Napoleon at this point has guns pointing at him from England, Austria, and Russia, and really doesn't have a choice but to focus on Europe. He has this tenuous peace with England. England is snapping up their colonies and breaching a lot of those peace treaties. And Austria is frothing at the mouth for a bourbon restoration. And Russia is also kind of being squirrely in this too. So I see where Napoleon is like, crap, we're broke. I promised my people prosperity. If I don't bring some cash into this treasury, we're screwed. So he basically gives Louisiana away for three cents an acre. In, the, in today's terms, it's $382 million he sells Louisiana for. Uh, that's less than the going rate of Twitter. So the United States now doubles their landmass for pennies on the dollar. Jefferson's like, okay, well, I don't have to worry about a French invasion anymore. And Napoleon has bought himself some equity and some time to continue his uh, causes. 
Again, America makes out at France's expense. And this, again, will come back to bite Napoleon in the ass because, once again, France is giving away everything to America, and America doesn't ever really repay any debts. Meanwhile, back in mainland France, they're not too bothered by these colonial wars and what's happening half a world away. There's peace. The men are at home. There's a little bit of a baby boom. Napoleon is making the people pretty happy, and he's still wildly popular. Josephine continues to be absolutely beloved by the people, and even the Bonapartes are keeping their mouths shut for the most part, and they're kind of going along to get along. That assassination attempt in 1800 kind of rattled everybody's cages, so they're leaving Josephine alone for the most part, and it's a very prosperous time for mainland France. We discussed the assassination attempt on Napoleon on Christmas Eve 1800 in the last episode, and this caused his sense of urgency to kind of reignite over having heirs. However, that wasn't the only attempt on Napoleon's life. In all, there were four large-scale assassination attempts that we know about, but the one that rattled him more than the explosion of the fertile... But there was one that rattled him more than the explosion of the infernal machine in 1800. So now we're going to advance a few years. In January 1804, the Bourbons, now remember, in the last episode, Napoleon wants to blame the Jacobines for everything. And I think this comes from the fact that Robespierre had him arrested for sedition when he was in Marseille, if you remember, visiting the Claries. And I think that since the point of his arrest, he just immediately assumes the Jacobines, when in fact it's always been the royalists who want him dead. He just refuses to accept that. (laughs) The Bourbons are all in exile in Luxembourg, they're in England, they're everywhere. They hatch a plot to assassinate Napoleon through General Moreau. Now if you remember, Moreau was part of the coup of the 18th Brumaire. Moreau ends up marrying one of Josephine's ladies, Eugenie. They're all named Eugenie, I swear. (laughs) She was incredibly ambitious and found herself in some staunchly royalist circles where Club Moreau was formed. Long story short, this club, now backed by exiled Bourbons, wanted to stage a coup and put Moreau in charge. But Moreau was staunchly Republican. Moreau was of the same cloth as a Bernadotte and a Lafayette, and he didn't want to be a military dictator. So he agreed that if Napoleon can be brought down, he will reinstall Louis XVIII, Louis XVI's brother, as the king. Obviously, this assassination attempt fails, and Moreau is sentenced to prison. But Napoleon, again, being lenient, exiles Moreau and Eugenie to America. This is always where Napoleon screws up because he's so focused on the Jacobines being against him that he doesn't realize that there is, uh, you know, a wolf amongst the sheep. And it's always the military dudes cohorting with the royalists. He just refuses to believe it. So he's lenient with Moreau and Eugenie 
and it bites him in the ass in 1812 when Moreau returns to Europe after Eugenie's successful petitioning of the Tsar and cozies up to his old friend Bernadotte, who is now the crown prince of Sweden. So had he kept Moreau in prison, Eugenie could have been doing all of her ambitious chess work with the Tsar and Bernadotte and everything, but Moreau would have been contained. And this happens eight years later in 1812, and it ends up being the fall of the empire. And Napoleon is just, again, so myopic, he refuses to believe that people will not be loyal to him if they're in his inner circle. It's incredibly naive, and it's just so hard for me to get my mind wrapped around. Anyway, another way Napoleon messes up this assassination attempt is listening to Talleyrand. Now, we have discussed in the last two episodes that Talleyrand is a duplicitous rat. He is not to be trusted. He is part of the reason why the Bourbons fell the first time and the king was executed. He is in England's back pocket, and he is in the business for Talleyrand. He is not in the business for anybody but himself. He convinces Napoleon to retaliate against everyone involved in this assassination attempt by arresting the Duke d'Anghien, a guy who had nothing to do with the plot. He is just this innocent duke doing his thing, but Talleyrand tells him, with England's help, hey, you should make a point and send a message by arresting this guy. Duke Daoyan is arrested. He is executed after a sham military trial, which pisses off all of Europe's royal houses. Think of the First World War and how a nonsense duke was assassinated, Franz Ferdinand, and started a whole world war. This is kind of the same thing. Duke Daoyan had nothing to do with the assassination attempt plot by the Bourbons, but Talleyrand kind of sends off Napoleon like, yeah, we should kill this guy and let everybody know that they should be scared of us. When in fact, it just pisses everyone off and they want to start a war. Napoleon is so freaking gullible and he's got his such misplaced loyalty that this is like his number one fatal flaw. He doesn't see that Talleyrand is in the back pocket of the British. He doesn't see that he's being led astray by all of these people. He's like, well, if they're in my inner circle, they're obviously loyal. And it's like, no, fam, they're not. (laughs) I can't with him sometimes. He's just so gloriously dumb. During this time, and Napoleon is quite open about it, he reinstates the Catholic Church. He does so because he believes that to keep the lower class from revolting, they need to have a fear of God. He also decides that the Pope is a great ally in his wars with the other houses of Europe. This is actually a really good move on his part. He instates the Church back into France, but does not allow the Vatican to have any of their priceless lands and riches from before. He's basically saying, you get to rent my people. And the people rejoice. They're so super excited because the French, before the revolution, were highly Catholic. And he is on his way to reinstating 
this church, as well as instituting the Napoleonic Code in March of 1804. So he's got three years of goodwill with the people as far as they have religion, and he feels that having uneducated people involved in religion helps them be fearful of authority, and so he doesn't have to worry about uprisings, and he's not wrong. He then piggybacks the Napoleonic Code that he wrote in March of 1804, just two months after the Bourbon assassination attempt. This raises him even higher in the people's eyes because he has brought together rights and religion without anarchy. Little do the people know he's playing them because he's saying, on one hand, I have you fearful, and on the other hand, here are some rights. They, one goes into the other. Uh, you're free, but only so much. With public approval at an all-time high and his paranoia about his legacy also at an all-time high, it's now not enough that he's first counsel anymore. He feels the royal houses are pissed at him because they look down upon him. When in reality, they look down on him because he murdered an innocent man. And the Duke Yongen was literally no one in all of the royal houses of Europe, and he was made an example of. And Napoleon has this chip on his shoulder thinking, like, oh, they don't like you because I'm Corsican street rat. And they're like, no, they don't like you because you're a fucking murderer. But whatever. <laughs> Naturally, in his mind, he feels he would be respected more if he were made emperor, but, like, in a totally legit Roman way, right? He doesn't want to just, like, be a king, He's like, no, 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 we're going to make it democratic. It's going to be like Julius Caesar. The people are going to choose me as their king. Which is ironic because the same thing happens to Bernadotte, but Bernadotte's not actually looking for it. <sighs> Napoleon. He's just... He puts through this sham referendum, and 99% of people vote to make Napoleon emperor because they feel he's a strong leader. But not totally a king. But like a king, but not a king, but a king, right? Just exactly like a king. <laughs> We're just going to call it emperor and make it your idea. That's pretty genius. He makes it their idea to name him king. Honestly, people at this point were so exhausted from a decade of war and wanted a dominant ruler to tell them what to do. And I equate this with somebody who's been through a lot of trauma and can't quite process simple thought. So they just want somebody to tell them how to put one foot in front of the other to carry on. And that's kind of where the people of France are at this point. Most of them, their whole lives have been revolution and war. So to have this blustery guy come in and give them back their church and their rights, but not really. They're like, yes, yes, emperor, daddy. <laughs> they want a father figure to tell them what to do. And Napoleon fits that bill. The Bonapartes, that crazy band of lunatics, are ecstatic because this means that they too get to become nobility by proxy. But the point where they all bristle is whether or not Josephine will be crowned empress. Napoleon actually berates his family this time and is like, she's literally the reason you're here, idiots. And, oh, you'll be walking behind her carrying her train, you ingrates. Which sends them over the edge. How could it not? Letizia, his mother, refuses to attend the ceremony. Imagine that. 
Just, just imagine. You're about to be crowned Emperor of the French and the King of Italy. And your mom is like, nope, not coming. Don't like your wife. I don't want to see a whore with a crown on her head. <laughs> Which is literally Letizia's position. She, like, I cannot even fathom not going to my son's coronation because I don't like his wife. But actually, Napoleon doesn't even care because he has, you know, David, who is the artist painting the coronation, and he ends up making this 20 foot by 32 foot giant portrait of the coronation. He just tells David, hey, this is what my mom looks like. Just kind of put her in the crowd somewhere. And David, um goes ahead and paints Letizia in. And it's not only so much Napoleon that baffles me that Letizia didn't come to the coronation. The Pope was officiating. And you would think someone like Letizia Bonaparte, who is devout and a widow that will never, ever remarry and has such a hard time with her daughter-in-law being so wanton and not religious, you would think Letizia would be there just to get the Pope's blessing. I'm thinking a very Evita-esque when Evita went to visit the Pope and the Pope barely acknowledged her. I feel like Letizia would want to see that with Josephine. She would want to absorb an Evita moment, but sadly, didn't happen. Letizia stayed in Corsica and abandoned her son effectively on his coronation day. Um, the Pope ends up being a Bonaparte sticking point, by the way. Letizia, again, I, I, I don't understand why Letizia doesn't kind of throw her weight behind this, because I think she would have had more influence if she did, but for whatever reason, she doesn't. But the rest of the siblings are like, how can a wife, he's only married to civilly, be crowned by the Pope if he's never blessed the marriage? And... But Napoleon's like, fine, uh, he'll church marry us the morning before, who cares? And he kind of thwarts that idea because the, the Bonapartes were kind of hoping not to have Josephine crowned because of the civil marriage. The whole thing with them is, um, oh, what's the word? Precedence. They don't want to walk behind her. They don't want to have to bow to her. They don't want the law of precedence to apply to her because they hate her and it's humiliating to them that they would have to bow and curtsy whenever they were in the room with her. So it's giving a lot of what's going on in the House of Windsor right now where they all have to curtsy to each other in a room. It's very strange. <laughs> so I have to hand it to Napoleon at this point because he's really done a 180 since the big fight after Egypt. So for those of you who are not familiar, after Egypt, remember he sent the letter to his brother to prepare for divorce and the English intercepted it and it was huge humiliation. He had his Cleopatra, Pauline the seamstress, who was humiliating Josephine in the press. And we had Ippolite Charles and all of this stuff. And Napoleon gets back. So Josephine tries to intercept Napoleon on his way back from Egypt to calm him down and be like, hey, that's my gay best friend, not my lover. And Napoleon changes his route to get back to Paris faster, and he, she misses him. So he gets back to the house, her house, by the way, 
and has all of the belongings packed up. He then locks himself into a room and refuses to come out. Josephine comes home. She bangs on the door. He will not answer her. She's frantic, and she gets the kids involved. They're sitting on the stairwell to the bedroom, crying, begging him to come out. And it's finally Hortense who bangs on the door, and she's like, Father, just come out and talk to me. Do you not love me anymore? Again, Josephine is awful in the way she uses her children, because she used both Eugène and Hortense to get there. And of course, Napoleon loves Hortense. He can't say no to Hortense. He opens the door and the rest is history. Josephine smooths it over. Hippolyte Charles is sent away. And here we are today. Such a tantrum. (laughs) That is the biggest tantrum I've ever heard. But Napoleon has done a complete 180 from that moment in time, five years prior, and he's giving Josephine the credit she is due and recognizing that she got him to where he is today. So all of the pomp and circumstance you can imagine is designed for the coronation. The Pope comes in to officiate. It will be held at Notre Dame. Napoleon is very specific in his request that this isn't done in the French tradition of prior coronations and anointing of the king. He doesn't do the whole anointing ceremony. Um, He uses a replica of Charlemagne's crown. He's not, it's not the pageantry of prior kings. And remember, Louis XVI had only been dead for not even 10 years yet. So there are people who remember when he was given the crown with Marie Antoinette the older folks, the boomers of that generation, if you will, remember that coronation. So Napoleon is very, very specifically pivoting away from that. This is supposed to be a public spectacle for the people, whereas coronations of the past were a very private affair. He has one crown made of gold laurels, like a Roman emperor would wear. And also, again, he doesn't use the crown of Charlemagne, He uses a replica of the crown of Charlemagne because we aren't totally making him a French king. (laughs) Nope, he is French king adjacent, but an emperor. It's totally different, guys. Don't look. (laughs) Josephine is dressed in a heavily beaded ivory gown and will wear ceremonial robes trimmed in ermine that weigh more than she does. Remember, she is an incredibly tiny and petite woman. So her robes probably weigh more than she does. Her ladies-in-waiting will be those sweet Bonaparte sisters who are not at all megaly pissed off that they're carrying the train of an old courtesan who is about to be crowned empress. (laughs) And um, Hortense will also be a lady-in-waiting. Now, here's the whole story between, be, between, uh, behind Josephine's coronation. So Josephine is a very tiny, slight woman, and she's into all of this ceremonial garb. And you have the Bonaparte sisters and Hortense behind her carrying it. She can only walk if her ladies are carrying the train. When Josephine gets up, to the altar, and it is time for her to kneel. These dumb bitch Bonaparte women drop the robes, and it sends Josephine careening 
back on her heels. Like they wanted a total splat moment. Hortense holds her part of the robes as hard as she can so her mother doesn't completely go ass over tea kettle and wipe out. Josephine manages to recover and make it to the, the kneeling part of the ceremony. Napoleon sees the treachery his sisters just commit on his wife. And when I tell you there was a volcanic eruption after the ceremony and those sisters were punished severely, believe me, because it happened. <laughs> just imagine, I mean, I understand, like, I have sisters-in-law and those, those relationships can be a bit contentious here and there. But I cannot, for the life of me, imagine wanting in a huge ceremony of any kind, any of my sisters-in-law, to have a full face plant splat moment of public humiliation. Like these Bonapartes think everyone else is the problem, but they are literally next level psychopaths. Every single one of them. I can't, I, I mean, I can't. Just, <laughs> we're gonna drop her robes and watch her fall. Like what? She's being, she's gonna be empress. Deal with it. Like just deal with it. So here is the other gaffe that happens. And I can't believe, again, so many people surround the Bonapartes. Like, did any, like, where was Bernadotte? Or did Bernadotte want this to happen? So when Napoleon walks in for his processional for his coronation, he's wearing the gold laurel crown. And he's doing the old pageant wave and the old, yes, 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 I'm the monarch, blah, blah, blah. And they go through the whole ceremony. <laughs> And when it comes time for the Pope to place the crown of Charlemagne on Bonaparte's head, all of a sudden everyone has this oh shit moment. Like, I can't put two crowns on your head, bro. Like, Napoleon's already wearing this big laurel crown. There's no way his dome is going to allow for Charlemagne's crown. So ad-libbing like an absolute genius he takes the crown out of the Pope's hand and places it on Josephine's head. Now, Josephine was also wearing a crown, but it was only a small diadem, which is like a headband or a bandeau. And so the crown fit perfectly on her head. And this really kind of cements the bad blood between the Pope and Napoleon because the optics of this are basically Napoleon crowned his own wife, not the Pope. Napoleon also crowned himself. And the Pope is really just kind of used as a puppet. And it really enhances that bad blood between the Pope and the new emperor. Down the line, Napoleon and Josephine are also named the King and Queen of Italy. Um, and Bernadotte is named the Marshal of France. Which is so funny because Bernadotte basically mocks Napoleon everywhere. <laughs> and this is where we get Napoleon on his little, like, he's always feeding the guys who won't bend the knee to him. Like, he's so desperate for their approval. He just showers them with accolades and they laugh at him. Bernadotte is like, sure, make me the Marshal of France. That's fine. <laughs> I'm going to go be the King of Sweden anyway. So we have a... a 
time of peace and prosperity. The new emperor and empress are universally beloved. The people adore them. They can't get enough of them. Um, Hortense's sons, along with his brother Louis, are named princes of the empire. So now we have all three houses of the Bernay, the Bernadotte, and the Bonapartes positioned within this new empire. And so far, it looks like it's going to be an incredibly peaceful and prosperous time. However, peace will not last long. And for the remainder of the empire, there will be great victories and huge losses ahead. And that is where we are going to end this episode. And I appreciate you spending your time with me. The coronation, if you have a chance, look up David's portrait of the coronation of Napoleon and Josephine is absolutely gorgeous. See if you can find Letizia. I'll give you a hint. She's wearing all black and how she was inserted in and how he masterfully made the Bonaparte sisters and Hortons look like willing participants. <laughs> anyway, don't forget to like and review this podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.